Hello and welcome to Behind the Bearcat. This is the podcast where the Northwest Missouri State University Career Services Office chats with Northwest faculty, staff, students, alumni, and friends to hear about their career journeys, how they got to where they are, and how they became Bearcats. I'm Career Services Assistant Director Travis Klein. And I'm Hannah Christian, the Director of Career Services here at Northwest. And today's show, our guest is... Will Murphy. Hi. I'm the television and video engineer in the Department of Communication and Mass Media here at Northwest. I'm also a uh, adjunct instructor. I teach some classes like advanced video production, television practicum, advanced television practicum. And basically, I tell people if it plugs in, if it blinks, flashes, or catches on fire, I'm the guy you got to come see about it. Welcome, Welcome Will. Will. Most requested guest. Yes, I think Will gets the award for most times name dropped in podcast history, going all the way back to season one of Behind the Bearcats. So a lot of people have things that blink, flash, or catch on fire. So absolutely, yeah. When news breaks, you're there to fix it, right? That's so, right. And your and your name when you throw it out there, it just will, will, will. So tell us, Will. Tell us your story. Literally, just start from the beginning. Young Will is a lad. How did he get to be this great Will? I was born in West Des Moines, Iowa, actually a smaller town just off the side, Indianola, Norwalk area, and then we moved closer to West Des Moines. Grew up, went to Waukee High School, so I I love when we get our uh, alumni from our central Iowa. I'm a big fan. I didn't have any plans for what I was going to do when I was growing up, when I was a little kid. I I like doing a little bit of everything. I think I'm the kind of person who can be directly drawn in the straightest line from me to my father, and I'm just a, uh, you know, second version of him. Um, and he to his dad. So my background kind of follows his in that he grew up a farm kid, very manual labor. Um, if you need something, you better make it because we can't go get it kind of thing. And then got into the Air Force where he wanted to be a pilot, but couldn't because he was colorblind. So they put him into computer programming. So then he ended up becoming this computer person, which gave him this digital and analog co-component and that's where I came up. So I had a childhood where we had a big workshop off one side of the house. You can go out and you can make something, but inside, and we're talking during like the you know early 1980s, um, had things like a Commodore 64 inside with the uh, old modem where you would actually take a telephone and put it in a cradle. And that's how they could uh, telecommute to work 20 years before it was a thing. And so if you know we were interested in video games or something, they could program one. Um, and so that childhood explains a lot of who Will is now. You draw that line straight from my parents and their crazy diverse things that they do. And uh, I am, I'm definitely their son. So I came up through doing a lot of uh, speech, um, forensics in high school, that kind of stuff. Um, theater, really, really had a passion for it. I love the magic. When I was looking at schools, I was accepted to see University of Iowa and uh, Marquette were a couple big ones on my list. And I went and toured Marquette. It was Interesting. We were, in fact, just through on a summer trip going to see Dave Matthews play once and went through the campus and uh, there were no trees. It was inner city. It's, it's a great school. It's a great program. But I just kind of looked around and I was like, I, I don't know if I could be happy there as a place. University of Iowa had kind of the same deal. My dad was born outside of Iowa City. And so I really thought for a long time I'd go there. And then finding some of the class sizes, friends who were going in classes of 200 kids in a math lecture, And I realized I'm never going to be able to learn like that. So my mom had been a Bearcat. Um, She's from Lenox, Iowa, Southern Iowa area. And so she said, well, let's go down and we'll take a look. And I, being an Iowa kid, you know, everybody has the interstate rivalries, of course. So 
I thought Missouri and education were going to be kind of an oil and water situation. And I admit I was wrong. I was here maybe 10 minutes and I was sold. You know, the place just beautiful, as we all know. Um, the people were nice. It's the kind of place where if you're wandering around and somebody would go, hey, do you know where you're heading? Um, instead of putting their earbud pods in and uh, wandering off. And I, I caught on to that real quick and realized this was kind of the place I wanted to be. But I didn't know what I wanted to do when I got here. So once I came to Northwest, I started out over in theater and some tech theater. I was looking into some psych and social stuff. And I kind of stumbled across the mass comm as a minor, which is where I figured I'd kind of vector out from and then match it up with something else. And I, I was a mass comm major, by the way. I was never a, a broadcasting production major, which is the fun fact for a lot of students here who are looking for that. But I came upstairs one day. Um, I was taking a class with Dr. Bob Bulkin, who's one of my still favorite instructors on this planet Earth. Came upstairs and Scott Duncan, who was the engineer in the television studio at the time, was in the television studio. I get to the top of the staircase. There's a door open and I look into it and I think, wow, this is, this is amazing. And I kind of walk in and Scott, doing something that I've tried to continue in my 20 years here now, didn't ask, what's your major? What are you doing? Why are you in here? He said, do these things interest you? Yeah. Well, come over here. I'll show you how they work. That was all of the discussion. And uh, that got me into learning about mass comm. And I had the quick realization that, hey, you know, I, theater is great. Um, I'm, I'm a technical theater kind of person. I'm not an onstage kind of person. But the realization that I, I don't want to live in New York or Los Angeles to make these things. And it's a really hard grind out world. It's magical and it's amazing, but it's hard. And I realized that every town has a theater that is a television station. Every large city has sometimes two or three or four of them. And that gave you a whole lot more opportunities. And there's a lot more magic to be found. So I apprenticed under Scott for two and a half years as I took all of the mass media classes. Again, never, never even put thought into like, hey, I should go to my uh, advisor and be like, why don't I make this a double major? And doing the math later on, I realized I could have walked out the door with both of them, but just kept taking the classes because everybody around here was so amazing. Fred and Jackie, Jody, just wonderful, wonderful people. And so that got me stuck here. And then coming up, I guess it was February 14th of 2003, Scott Duncan came in and after two and a half years of apprenticing under him said, hey, I'm, I'm going to go get my wife. She had gone out to Regent University in Virginia to finish up her doctorate, the amazing Laura Duncan. And Lauren too, I had classes with her and having both of them in the same place was fantastic. So, like, oh yeah, you go get her. Great. How long is she going to stay? And he said, no, I'm, I'm going to hear her, but it's a one-way trip. And I did the math real quick. And he said, I put in my 60 days notice. And I said, well, that's, that's not cool. I, he said, I did it 30 days ago and I did more math and went, Hey, but that means you're leaving in a month. And he goes, yeah. And I think you would do good to cover this position for a little while while they hire somebody. And that rolled me right into being a temporary video engineer, which I, of course, told him, absolutely not. No, I have no idea what I'm doing. But it turns out in them looking for other people, they brought in, I remember three or four applicants, maybe five, um, who I gave tours and spent half days with trying to show them the equipment around. And the number of them who were looking at the stuff and going, hey, we, we didn't do stuff like this at our studios. Or, I'm not sure if I'm really... And it, because I was just the kid who was there, they were pretty open with saying, well, I don't know, I am, that's not stuff I'm really familiar with. And it became kind of apparent that the kid who was working it was probably better skilled for it. So I uh, turned down a job at KQ2. I was going to go down there and work at Creative Services under the amazing Bob Schultz. And uh, 
turn that down, said, I'll do this. And he said, all right, when you're done with that, you come up here and it's been 20 years. They're still waiting. So it's been a really neat ride. I've been able to do a lot of things here. I've been able to turn it into this job that I love being at Northwest. I've been able to pick up a dual master's degree. There was a program in instructional technology that was half computer science and half education. I was one of the first out of that program. And then Adam Bocart, who you guys have talked to, the amazing Adam Bocart, um, was one of the last. So we kind of bookended that program. Well, I think we were, you know, amazing start and amazing finish. And they just realized this is a good place to, you know, peak. End on a high note. Yeah. Right. So I, I took the ability to, I've been doing tech every day. So I thought maybe I should do a master's in becoming a better teacher. And I've been able to do that. So now I, I teach, I fix, I make, I spend time with students convincing them that they can do things that they keep telling themselves they can't and don't imagine in their wildest dreams they'll be able to pull off. And then they get so good at it that I ask them how they did that. And I think that's something people don't understand about Northwest is, you know, we're we're not a huge school. We're not the size of Iowa State or MU or those schools. But the facilities you guys have in Wells Hall rival, if not beat, a lot of those bigger schools. Can you kind of talk about some of the stuff, the toys you guys have over there that you get to play with every day? Yeah, there's I I've been in a lot of school production facilities. I've been in a lot of professional production facilities that don't have what we have been able to offer here. We've just been doing some looking at the uh, job descriptions to see how much it's changed over 20 years. And we actually, in the last couple of weeks, came up with a list. And we figured out that when I got the job, there were four production facilities that I was tasked with taking care of. Our television studio and our control room. Um, there were a couple of brought up studios that were literally, at the time, a couple of magnetic tape recorders. And they had just moved over into computers. And, you know, the student publications area, that kind of stuff. Those four places over 20 years have worked into 27 workspaces that we have in the building now, including greatly expanded edit bays, podcasting studios, uh, video that includes radio. So our live radio programs have cameras in the studios and they're broadcasting live via Twitch and Facebook, all kinds of theater spaces and others we've been able to build out in this building that gives such a variety and what, what we tell students and what we see from students who are coming from other programs, because we once or twice a year, we get a student who comes in from an MU or an ISU or a University of Iowa because they went there. They had a friend who came here and their friend keeps sending them pictures of what they're doing and they keep going, but they're not going to let me do that for two years. And our stuff isn't. And so I, I tell people a lot, there's not bad programs. Most of the programs I've been in have been great. And they're all tasked with some very specific things. There are a lot of places that do a, a news show and a sports show, and they might do that daily. And if you want to get into the news, that is going to be a great experience for you. Here, we have a strange niche in that we really let the students decide what they're going to do. Um, the programming we have for KWT is student-led. Uh, Kaylin Byland is my general manager. She's amazing. They are deciding the kind of programming they want to do, entertainment, news, sports. They are each week working within a set of guidelines that we've given them. We're telling them you have to make broadcast time. We, we watch every minute of every show and give weekly critiques. And then they're making things that their hearts are part of. But if, if they get really pulled into the thing that they're making, they're going to make a better product. We're going to like watching the product more. And it's not that they're being forced into the same news or sports show for somebody who doesn't want to go out and work at a news station. We do have those journalists and that's their desire. And we've got Channel 8 News and some venues for them. But we have a show that's going to be starting in a few minutes in Studio A that they are making pancakes with Dr. Kylie Wilson today while they talk to her about her background in organizational and health communication. So they're going to make unhealthy breakfast while talking about health comm because it makes for a great interview to have them doing something loosely tangential to their, their job. And then that's the kind of stuff that a student came up with that idea over spring break uh, last year, or no, winter break. And uh, she's 
out and going with it now. It's a full show. So it's been great. We've also, because of that, have been able to pull down a number of national awards. This last year we came in, it would have been third or fourth place in the ACP, um, Associated Collegiate Press, uh, CMA, College Media Advisors, third place in the nation for broadcast program. And that is every school at every level. It's not a D1, D2, D3 kind of setup. And it's because these students are doing such a variety of work. They're, they're doing things where one of the things I like about students is the number of times we'll even meet with our professionals who are advisors to the department and know what we have here to offer, but we'll look at a project that the student has planned and say, no, they're not going to be able to do that. They don't have the funding. They don't have the equipment. They don't have the institutional knowledge. Uh, so many reasons that they'll put out there. And then the students go out and do it because nobody has told them they can't do it yet. And students don't realize if you haven't said you can't do it, they figure they can do it. So they do. And we try to make a space where we just won't tell them no. We'll tell them the, I let a lot of medium bad ideas go through. And that's one of the secrets to teaching. I'm here to keep the really bad ideas away. And I'm here to give you some rails that this thing can run on. And then I'm going to let you go. And I'm going to stand there and I'm going to be there if it doesn't work. So many times it doesn't work and failure is one of our best tools. So we will let them run out there. That's why we're not a school that does two years of theory before you can get hands-on with stuff. And that learn by failure, that move fast and break things, it's the best part. And so many times they pull off something that they have no reason that they should be able to. And it's because they're, they're amazing and they've been put in an amazing facility and they have some amazing support from the folks here around them. I think, you know, this is interesting. This this brought to light a, a couple things. Well, you know, Behind the Bearcat was a medium bad idea <laughs> born out of the podcast studio in the basement of Wells Hall, right? That's right. And so here we are. We just, Travis, kudos to Travis mostly for refining, for editing, for gaining all those technical skills that it takes to go. But when we talk here at Northwest about profession-based learning, that's what that's what we're talking about. We're talking about learning in the context of doing. We're not talking about learning. It, theory is important, but we're not talking about learning in the context of having to have this broad base of, of theoretical knowledge before you can take action on something. And so that's why, you know, I mean, KNWT, uh, the radio station, that's why everything, it's so important to let students just be interested and jump in and, and get that hands-on learning in addition to the theory. Like, just like we did when we started behind the Bearcat, we were, we were very hands-on learning. And one thing that I think a lot of people don't understand, and whether that's you, Will, or whether that's us, is that- There's a lot I don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> the more we do things, the more we don't understand. It gets harder it takes courage, right? To just be like, I don't know what's going on here, but I'm going to do something. Um, and so shout out, you say, you know, you learn a lot from students. I I really encourage students to, to have the courage to go out and do something that interests them. It's hard for us as professionals to be like, I'm going to flop at this podcast, this medium bad idea of a podcast, right? But literally, if you just keep going, I mean, we just keep making <laughs> episodes of the podcast. Like eventually you won't be it won't be a medium bad idea, right? You you right. will iterate and you will you will make twists and turns and you will get there. So hats off to you, Will, for continuing to give that advice and supporting those medium bad ideas. I, I love medium bad ideas. I'm going to steal that one. We have a lot of discussions in practicum about the right level of danger to get yourself in is right here. It's just enough that if you really need to get a breath, you can still get up there, but you won't learn anything if you're not in over your head. 
so many of the really, really fun things in my life have come from a snap decision of saying, yeah, we can do that. And then a couple minutes later going, oh my God, can we do that? And so <laughs> there's a event that we did last spring with the students that after we'd come back from COVID, uh, we called it Bearcat Bash. It was the first football game back coming off of COVID and both teams had to cancel. The other team had uh, enough players out. They couldn't feel the team. And they said, well, football game's off. We're not going to, we're not going to go out there. And we said, well, that's great. Cause we don't, we also don't want to be crammed into a tiny booth anytime that we don't have to, but we did realize maybe this is an opportunity and Katie Strickland and I, and uh, just kind of walking after lunch one day decided, you know, we've got the band. They're ready. They're amazing. The BMB. I mean, my God, we've got, spirit squads they've been practicing we've got the tv crew who's been looking to get out and do something we could do something outside we don't need the football team and so we decided to put on basically the halftime show out in front of the admin building with less than 48 hours to go and we told the students literally hey we just decided this thing you have 48 hours this is going to be an event for we're assuming 500 people starring 125 stage actors eventually you have 48 hours you're also doing classes it's the first week of classes go and they did and they pulled it off that's the kind of stuff that you set up that we got in too deep and it quickly morphed from let's get a couple cameras to let's take out the truck to let's get a, a jib and that kind of stuff and we end up turning out this live tv thing and I, I think that's pushing that sometimes it's giving them something they can get out and do that's too deep other times it's pushing them into you sit and you listen to a lot of their ideas I try to spend a half hour to an hour a day out in our lobby area, sitting with the students when they just randomly wander through and you meet so many of them, you get to know parts of their lives. And really quickly, they will come to see you not as an instructor, but as a, a resource, a person who they can ask questions and do things about. So just this morning, we've been talking about internships, we've been talking about producing features, we've been talking about um, networking and how to get into contact with some people who are out there. I've looked at two student projects just being out there and making yourself available and sometimes convincing them that they can do this thing is that that silent back end to it too. And I, yeah, you got to get out and just say sure and then figure out later if it was a good idea or not. So you mentioned the truck and we've had the truck. It's been mentioned a couple times, but that's one of those things that's rare for a school our size to have is a full-on broadcast truck. Do you want to talk about it and how we how it came to be and how you use it in the in the department? There are only four broadcast vehicles in the nation that are wholly owned by the student media, not by the school or by a entity with them. So like if you go down to MU and KOMU, um, that's a TV station that works a ton with the school. They're almost nested within it, but the equipment belongs to them. It's kind of like the setup of KXCV here. We are blessed to have this professional station here in our building with an amazing group of people. But a student can't walk out and say, hey, I'm going to take your van and we're going to go over here and cover this thing. No, no, that's that's equipment of their station. And so in our case, the broadcast truck is the property of the four student medias who run it. Uh, Missourian, Yearbook, Radio and Television, who uses it the most of all of them. So I'm a little, little biased, but uh, it's a fantastic resource. It's actually, so we talked about bad ideas, medium bad ideas. One year, John Pliskoda and I, who was an instructor here, um, were sitting at a conference that was happening over in the, it was the CIE at the time, looked out the window and there's this white short bus, a 1987 Chevy Bluebird short bus, the kind of thing that is ugly pretty to a maker guy like me because it's a blank canvas. 
And we see it across the field sitting behind surplus. And we think, man, after this, we should go over and steal that. And so what we do is we go over, we talk to Ronnie, we talk to Mike. It came out of athletics. Athletics was parking it over there for a bit and had a long life with them of hauling stuff around. We took it. I had a couple student interns. We um, turn on the A-team music here, ripped out half the seats, put in some big benches, some portals and things for wiring. And we had the 1987 Chevy Bluebird student media bus because the school for years had said, well, I, I don't know about getting a vehicle. And they're right. <laughs> um, giving the keys to a, a large investment like that straight to students is definitely something that I, you know, I don't, I don't doubt them for asking a lot of hard questions. But all of a sudden, here was this vehicle they already owned. So, okay, that one's off the table. So we built it out into a media truck. We ran that for about three years. It ran great. We didn't have any issues. Well, it didn't run great. It was a 1987 Chevy Bluebird short bus. It ran reasonably well, but we ran some great productions out of it. And that morphed into asking about um, moving up into something a little bit bigger, a production trailer or something. And then Dr. Tim Mote, the provost at the time, had found some money in a pool that had to be used by X date. And he looked down our list of requests and said, you know, that'd be a good one. So we were able to acquire that one through a broker. It came from a PBS station in Florida when they cut funding to public media. They went from, I think, seven stations to three. And this was from one of the four stations that didn't survive. They sold it off to a company in, uh, oh, let's see, they were just outside of Baltimore. It's where we got it. They were going to build it up into a production truck. They'd just done another one that had gone through a $1.2 million conversion on that same size truck. So they had this shell of a truck and between the time between acquiring it and starting that build, they realized they needed to go bigger. They needed to get into a semi-sized production vehicle. And we were able to buy it. He was worried about selling it to local people who would build it up and compete with his company. So we were able to buy it basically in one of those, hey, here's all of the budget we have for this thing. I recognize it's $20,000 less than you're asking. Can we do this? And we managed to pick up that truck as a shell for less than 50 grand, which is well less than it was worth brought it back here, and then working with some amazing folks that we have out there in the industry. So many people like Ed King down at KMBC, over at uh, Sprint T-Mobile, we've got a whole ton of grads there, but um, Tim Wilkinson, who is their chief engineer, and he is one of the guys who feeds us equipment all the time. We've got folks at Frontline, the company who built the truck. When we went out to Las Vegas for NAB, the National Association of Broadcasters Convention, which is a yearly stop where we can get hands-on with a lot of gear to test it out, he remembered seeing the photos of the empty truck, that it was going to a school, hadn't had anybody else who'd done something like that, and uh, took pity on us, for lack of a better term. And they called uh, a couple months later and said, hey, I remember that truck you had here. Turns out that one was built for us. They built it for their local television station, which happened to be that PBS station that was closed out. So he remembered that specific truck and said, hey, we've got a couple pallets of gear here that came out of a Fox truck that caught on fire. And the insurance company said, get rid of it. And we asked them, what happens to it once we set it next to the dumpster? And they said, I don't know. That's the trash guy's problem. So they called us and we went down and picked up $400,000 worth of smoke damage equipment that I and some interns over the summer um, spent some time. That was right when I had my twins too. So I got them started and then had to disappear for a couple of weeks to go, go have kids. And we worked all that equipment down. I think only one or two pieces didn't fire back up after a complete tear down to circuit boards, cleaning, put it back together. And so we were able to install a lot of that gear in the truck. So for less than a $75,000, $80,000 investment, we have a truck that is easily worth 
probably a half million dollars in a real production environment. We've upgraded that to the point now that it is a 16 camera 4K rolling television studio with its own onboard fully self-contained radio studio and large speakers out the side. If you've ever heard it, it's got a wall of speakers that definitely go all the way to 11. And so it's, it's one of those things that there are only a couple of those at other schools where students have the ability to do that or to say, hey, we've got this idea to shoot this thing. We're going to take the truck and go do it. And that's that's all they need. They don't need to seek layers and layers of approval. They can go out and do that. And that's been one of our most fantastic additions to the program. And it's it's the kind of thing that we've been able to do at dime on the dollar because we're, we're thrifty. I feel really fortunate to be supported in the way that I, I am in my job. There's a a lot of times that I'll go to my supervisor and say, hey, this thing is broke. The XYZ is, is malfunctioning. The company says it's five grand to fix it. I think I can do it for 700. If that doesn't work, that's that money out the, out the window. But I think I can, I can rebuild that part for $700. And they've just about every time gone, okay, give it a shot. And so far, I haven't lost on one of those. I don't know that it, it's a good streak but it'll end sometime. <laughs> um, but having that kind of support and that it runs all the way up and that we have people like our, our promos, Jamie Hoyman is wonderful for supporting that kind of a, a vehicle. The times that we've come up and said, hey, we, we need to do this or that. And she just looks at it and, yep, all right, you need it, let's do it. And she, she's one of those people who's able to see where that investment is going straight to students. And understanding that a piece like that isn't just an educational tool, it's a recruitment tool, it's it's a way to make national award-winning productions that you yeah. can enter into those things. So it's not just a line expense for, you know, career, you know, student career, you know, experience, it's all those other things. So having leaders that understand that, I imagine, makes a huge difference for you. It does. At one point, John Jasinski was the, the chair of our department here before he, long before he became famous. And so that, that was great because it meant that we didn't have to do a lot of explaining about what our mission was every time that we go up for um, some asking. We've, we've just our administration and the support we've gotten from them has been great. And honestly, it's part of what makes this program possible. It's, it's got to be a full buy in. Otherwise, this doesn't work. Well, you're sitting in a pretty cool place, too. At least the background looks pretty cool. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, this is um, the Kelly Ferguson News Studio. Uh, Kelly Ferguson was a alum, was he, he's still with us. Guy's fantastic. Um, he is an alum of ours who donated to something that was similar to what he was doing, places where students could hang out and make things. Um, and this is a perfect example of one of those rooms where this used to be a, a classroom and one of the more boring ones at that. A very small classroom. Very small no classroom. <laughs> uh-huh. It's in the core of Wells Hall. And uh, I had, through some of our folks, uh, through KCTV5, through Ed King at KMBC, been squirreling away a few parts and set pieces, like the big news desk that you'd see here behind me. This <laughs> big round guy used to be the weather desk at KMBC. Here, I'll spin you around a little bit because I'm on a wireless mic. So our news set, you might recognize some of these parts as the background of what used to be KCTV5. Um, the traffic desk right down here that's got all of my junk on it right now, gaff tape. This is what really makes industry, production industry work. Everything's held together with gaff tape. So this room, in fact, the big plexiglass panels behind me, we sourced out. I bought a cricket and we did all of our own vinyl work back there. So a lot of the things, again, this was done on a dollar looking budget done with dimes. And so this, this whole project, Kelly was able to put in $25,000 that bought us all of the camera and equipment and parts and pieces in here. And he was able to get the gears going with that, with the parts and pieces that we had donated from those alumni, the uh, low people in high places, I think was the Garth Brooks song, something like that. People who can get us these 
this equipment that industry has, um, they've depreciated out of their system. So because they've taken tax reductions and things, they don't, it doesn't have an actual value. And it's people who say, you know what, these are good functional pieces. We're just updating to this. And so they've been able to give us a shout out and we've been able to grab some of those parts and pieces and put them all together. So the room I sit in now is easily a $150,000 production studio that we were again able to put together. One of my goals each year is to save the university enough money that I've recouped the cost of my salary. And I've, there's only been two or three years I haven't been able to hit that mark. One would think that would make it you know, make you harder to fire. It's like endowing your own position, but I don't, I don't think that's how HR works in my <laughs> understanding, but yeah, it, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, just as a interesting side goal, if I can, if I can take something upscale it a little bit into a professional setting, and this gives us an ability that students can come in here, specifically students who don't have the large production background, students like our journalism students. I've got a lot of broadcast students who are fantastic building up and putting up whole sets, but the journalism students, that's not something they would ever be doing on a day-to-day. -day. The set's already there. So we give them that same kind of place where they can just jump in, do the art that they are practicing, do it at a professional level with professional equipment so that they aren't freaked out the first time they go out and do that in the real world. How much has technology changed MassCom too? I would imagine now, you know, like there were several students in the program we were in there who wanted to do filmmaking. You know, right. when you want to make a film in the late 90s, early 2000s, that was a lot more difficult than now. You need a, a iPhone and a Mac and you can basically make Hollywood level production. So has that kind of changed? I mean, obviously you still teach broadcast tools and how to use, yeah. you know, professional equipment, but they can do really high quality stuff without those tools sometimes too, right? There's a lot of places too, where we, we try and work with the students. A really good example. So the Arab Spring a few years ago, the uh, uprisings in the Mideast. And the reason the world was able to see that was because of journalists and documentarians who knew how to get a professional look off of the cell phone in their pocket. Um, the rest of the world might not have seen a lot of that life-changing, life-altering footage that came about if somebody hadn't known how to use those tools. So yeah, the tool closet does not stop. We've, we've got a, a whole array of cinema cameras, professional video gear, tracks and dollies, that kind of stuff. But I will challenge students all the time that I will outshoot you with my cell phone to prove the point of it. It doesn't matter the kind of gear you have. You have to have, you have to have the plan. You have to have the pre-production. You have to have the knowledge of what your equipment is capable of. If you can put your cell phone into the best lighting environment for it, it's going to look, it's not as good as the cinema camera, of course, but it's going to look real close. And by the time YouTube compresses it down into a little box, it's going to be hard to tell the difference. So yeah, there's, there's a lot. And when we talk about earlier, we talked about theory versus hands-on and how it needs to be a mix. This is the part of what makes a major like this really important in that students are getting that technical background. Advanced video production is a class about all the background of things. We just talk about the tech that makes it work, how it makes it work, and the little minutia of how do you get little red, green, and blue pixels to light up in the right order to make Star Wars. So what we're trying to do is give them that ability to look at a piece of equipment, break it down, figure out what it's good at, what it's not good at, and then how to get the most out of it in the real world. And does it change quick? Yeah, I, I spend... I spend probably 60 to 90 minutes a day researching what has changed since yesterday. Um, I'd, I'd be lying if I said I didn't study more every day as an engineer than I ever did as a student. There's just a lot of things. We go out to NAB each year to get hands-on with a lot of this gear because it's the best way for us to figure out, one, can a student break this? Um, but two, 
how do we weave this into our workflow? Is this worth jumping into? Because a lot of times we have a, a very small window for us to make a decision about the trajectory of the department to get students to a place that when they get into your workplace, they're going to be comfortable with the next thing. Because we know that our students and their level of hands-on and their ability to have spent four years doing a thing are going to be worth more in the production field because the people who they're coming up against may be coming out of these power programs, but they have so much less experience. So if we can get them to a point where they can walk into somebody's office and say, yeah, I, the next thing you're going to do, that big thing you just talked about, I got that. We can do that. And that's where so many of our people, like Jackie, when she got into SEO, before companies were putting in SEO departments and advertising agencies and others, that we've gotten into tapeless production and a lot of our digital efforts with some of our video work and audio work that we're far enough out ahead of the industry that we've been able to send the book of how to do the radio on TV simulcast show with a graduate to a company where they were hired to run that project for that company. There's a lot of radio stations around the region that are doing some video work now that came straight with a Bearcat grad and a manual, and here we go, and they're off and running. Bearcat grad and a manual. I love that. Well, talk about adding value, though. I mean, you hire yeah. somebody who can run a department, like the next time you got a department that needs run, I know where I would look the next time. So, you know, if you're an employer, like you're not just getting an employee, you're getting a whole department. <laughs> like, that's, Yeah, that's, that's, that's always free. You get all kinds of calls. Yeah. You talked about investing in your degree, right? So yeah. that you could become a better teacher. Talk to me about that journey. What I'm going to say now, I guess, would be kind of a hot take in the education circles um, because and I, I'm not I don't want it to sound like I'm saying that people with doctorates aren't worth it. They are. They are the pinnacle of that one thing that they are so incredibly skilled with. And we have so many of those amazing people here. But one thing that I have seen a lot, um, not just here, but everywhere, is that the more specified somebody got with that thing, that some of the other things had to go to the wayside. And I've seen a lot of people in my life who are doctors who are not communicators, medical professionals, educators, all of those, um, who that communication side wasn't necessarily there because it wasn't their forte or the in the classroom, like how to, how to write a test and that kind of stuff is, is huge. And I'd seen it lacking in some places. And so I realized that that was a thing that I didn't have any personal knowledge of. So I jumped into an education degree at the, the first chance. The computer science side, I wasn't worried about at all. And the instructors over there were great. So asking around, of course, Northwest with its history as an education school, everybody came back with, oh, they're fantastic. Oh, the, the teacher that, and then they'd throw out a name and talk about all the amazing things they'd done under that person. And so I thought, well, I'm, I'm in the right place. If I'm going to learn how to be a teacher, this is the place to do that. And I took <laughs> five and a half years to do that two-year program because <laughs> you're doing all the other things at the same time, but worked with a lot of amazing people over there and learned a ton about the pedagogy that goes into the making of a good class and making of a good learning environment and how to structure your message in multiple ways so that students who have different learning styles can learn about it. And that has flowed back as I have authored a number of classes here, like uh, Fundamentals of Electronic Media Production, which is a hands-on intro of intro classes that Adam Bocart now teaches. Um, was entirely structured around that thought that if somebody else is going to go to another school and say no to them because it's going to be two years before they get their hands on a camera, then they're going to come here. I'm going to make it less than two weeks. So I want to get a camera or an audio recorder or graphic design tablet into their hands the first two weeks that they're here on campus. And so it's planning a class that one gets people away from that fear of those things. It reaches out to them with some really understandable, basic usable usability concepts and not being afraid of the tools you have at hand. And it forces everybody to try a little bit of everything. And that's the kind of stuff I like in education. 
I don't want you to do an assignment. I want you to do something your heart's in. So being flexible with the way that you teach. I try to do assignments like uh, a master shots in advanced video production where the students aren't given a, here's the thing you're going to shoot. They are given, again, those guardrails of we're going to do shots that have camera movement in these four styles, but whatever you're going to make, that's what I'm going to grade. So some students who are into news and journalism are going to do documentary type projects. Others who are going to do Hollywood slasher films, all of Justin Ross, who we're referencing there just a minute ago, some of our uh, great Hollywood alumni. We want to try and plan something that the student really puts their whole heart and desire into. That work product is going to be better. They're going to get more out of it. We're going to enjoy watching it more. And so that learning how to make that happen was something that I did through that master's program, knowing that it was a weakness before. And I always tell people that the best team you can put together when you're putting together a crew is to figure out what you don't know anything about, hire those people, trust them and stand back. You do the thing you do well, get other people who do the thing they do well, and let's all work together. And that's going to make the best end crew. So you're talking about this in the the course of like mass media students or broadcast students. Mm -hmm. So when I was a student in 2000, I think it was five or four. I don't remember. I was in Spanish, intermediate Spanish one. And shout out to Paco. One of our assignments was we had to create a telenovela. And so we, we wrote it. We, I was the crazy old lady killer grandma, right? You said slasher film. It just brought this all back. But one of my good friends was, and is, and Travis, this is another guest idea, but Crystal, her name was Wales at the time, but was a mass media student. And she, so this has nothing to do with any class. This has nothing to do with anything other Mm -hmm. than the fact that she helped me do I did all the post-production, but she sat down and taught me because of the way that she was learning in her classes. Like we sat down and I did all the post-production because she was teaching me. She was giving me the the skills to do that, right? So what you don't like the second order effects that people don't understand is having these students with these skills in an environment like this raises the bar for everyone because other students in other places, like you say, Hire the people with the skills you don't have or befriend them or maybe they're your roommate in your room, right? And somebody has an assignment to do this. Your roommate can help you because your roommate has access to the TV truck. Your roommate has access to the studio. Like your roommate has these skills that can help you really gain experiences. Just because you're not a mass media major doesn't mean these things don't influence you. We're the center of an ecosystem. And especially in media, we're this weird place that doesn't necessarily, it stands on its own in some, you know, like Hollywood type respects, television respects, but media is a layer that's applied to anything else. And so, yeah, you, you want to be something where you can reach out and just plug yourself into whatever is going on. And that's one of the, the really neat places, uh, really neat things about working in a place like this is we get to jump out into, I remember exactly Paco's telenovela, getting a camera and stuff <laughs> lined up for that, getting out into some of the strangest things I've done are like uh, fishing. Brett Ware, who owns Tightlines UV, a company here in town, I worked with him for years as his creative services director shooting videos, thinking when I got asked, hey, you want to come out and shoot some fishing? Yeah, okay, we'll do that. And then all of a sudden, um, he rolls up in this Humvee with this like bass boat with these huge motors on the back. And the thing is closer to NASCAR than fish. And you get into these weird things. And all of a sudden, it's into marketing and UV lighting and science research and all the tangentials that start to break out and away from that. And then one day we're on a lake in Shreveport and the ESPN helicopter is cruising next to the boat that we're in. And it's this surreal moment where you step back and you go, did I just get paid for that? 
<laughs> so yeah, yeah, it reaches out all over the place. Northwest, so talking about Northwest as the center of an ecosystem. Um, I told you my mom was an alum here of the program. Computer science in whatever they called computer science before computers were the, you know, called <laughs> computers. So she had gone to school here. Um, so that was my tie into Northwest. Since coming here, um, I met my wife when I was here. She was a uh, taking a freshman tour and I was just about a senior and I gave her a tour of the building because I love hijacking tours. Um, if I can hijack a, a tour when they come through, show them all the facilities, it's, <laughs> it's one of my favorite things to do. Um, so hijacked the tour, showed them around, that kind of stuff. Then she came here as an undergrad and I was working and then she left to go get a master's. We just only kind of known each other and when she or left, came back to get her master's. And at that point, I was one of the few people in town she knew. So it's kind of like meeting a person, then waiting seven years to ask the big question. <laughs> You know, um, she worked at Northwest for a number of years. She was on KXCV, has such a deep love for KXCV and their mission. Um, and she worked downstairs in student publications as their business manager. She's now left the university to work. She's got an MBA here. So she got her master's here as well. Works for a place in Connecticut called Small Victories Wellness that is owned by uh, Carissa, who is her roommate from Northwest, who went out there and started a company and is now hired Leslie to be the COO of that company. So the web stretches out that way. Uh, my kids go to Horace Mann. And when I step out of the front of Wells Hall, I can hear Thatcher's laugh. It's very distinct. <laughs> Walking out of my building, which is amazing. But the thing that has thrown me off the most over the years is that one year when I was early on starting here, I wandered over to Vault. Rod Barr had some kind of crazy idea. And he's the kind of guy who has crazy ideas that line up well with my crazy, <laughs> I think we can do that answers. So I'd gone over to help them with something and in working and trying to get some video set up they had going on, Ann Clark, who was their secretary over in Vault, came in and she was just kind of chit-chatting for a second. And then she went, you sound just like your grandfather. And I thought, oh, did you know Vernal? My grandpa had been from Linux somewhere nearby. She said, oh, no, 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 you're Bill. And this was strange to me because my grandfather, my father's father, died before they knew I was pregnant. Anne had gone to the University of Iowa, where my grandfather was the superintendent at University Hospital, some of their maintenance crews. And she had gone through their secretarial college, come out, and her first job was working as a secretary in his office. So <laughs> she is the only person outside of my family who I've ever met that knows him and knows me, watched us both working enough that she said, oh, you sound just like him. And that has meant so much to me, too. So the web went years before I got here and it's going to go for years after I leave hopefully with the legacy that we've laid down with this so to, to say Northwest is the center of our ecosystem is understatement of the year mm -hmm. yeah absolutely yeah. well and just switch not to switch gears too much but you mentioned hiring and you know hiring I imagine that you do that you know you have student oh. crews folks work for you what when you're looking for someone for the types of jobs where you're hiring what are the things that you're looking for what are the <laughs> skills that they really need because i would think you know you can teach a lot of stuff and you do teach a lot of stuff over there obviously that's why your name comes up so often but what's the stuff that you the skills you really want them to have that you can build on versus having to start from zero you need the ability to be able to jump into something without worrying if it's going to fail it's okay if it fails we'll stop and we'll start over again and we'll get it next time but you need the ability to jump in and, and do something even if you think it's going to fail you need the ability to organize yourself and work well with others being part of a crew is what we do here so you have to work with other people you need for the love of god be good to your cooks and supply men 
There is very little the university president could do for any given person on a given day. Their job is fundraising and all kinds of major important stuff that, thank goodness, we don't have to deal with because they do it. But the guys like Ronnie and Mike over in purchasing who can get your package over here before the whatever happens so we have the part in time, those are the kind of guys who move the world. And so be good to your cooks and supplymen because those are the people who are doing what we're doing. We're just that same group to the next people who need the video feed. So be good to people, good, be good to each other. Be a little crazy. We're, we're weird people <laughs> over here and we're, we're weird in all the best ways. And so you, you've got to be a little bit crazy and a little bit weird to fit in really well. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, it's a world where we're looking for people. Moose Bland, Brandon Bland, when he was on your show. Um, I've known his Moose Bland for years. He was a student and he's exactly the kind of people you can tell by watching where he was on his, your show, Adam Bocart. He's exactly our kind of people. That's what you need. But you can also, anybody can get in and dabble. And one of the best things about this, something that from a, a hiring standpoint, media production is one of those jobs where it doesn't matter if you're black or white or purple, male, female, doesn't, it's about your real and the work that you can bring to something. And that's one of the best parts. The equalizer is this is about your work. Most people, before you get hired, you might not even have ever physically come in contact with them. We live in a production world now where uh, I, I worked with a person for four or five years producing videos for ACP, Associated Collegiate Press, some of their awards videos. And I've never met, physically met the producer that I've worked with. Um, I've never heard her voice. We talked over uh, a couple of apps and things, but I've done hours and hours and hours of work. So this is a field where you might not even physically ever meet the people that you're working with and you can still apply your trade. Um, so I know it changes a whole lot about the you know appearances and that kind of stuff that go with some other profession. I, interesting story about hiring. The kind of person I'm looking for, I had a student last year who came up from Eldon, Missouri. His name's Jason. And uh, he came to a football game and about 20 minutes before kickoff, four of our operators, two were camera operators, one was the audio operator, and I think another was one of our grips got stuck in the elevator over at the football field. And so we get a call over the walkie-talkie that, hey, we're, we're not going to make it. We're in the elevator. We're trying to figure out what we can do. So, of course, we, we call Rick Allen, um, who fixes everything around here. Fantastic guy. We call Rick Allen. Rick Allen gets people and they go over there, Rick and Tina, and they're, they're working on that. So we go, okay, when they're out, they're out. Until then, they're in good hands. And then we start looking around at how are we going to pull off this shoot? Because we've got this major game about to happen. This student, Jason, has a, uh, you know, he's talked about how, oh, yeah, yeah, he, he was playing football. He got hurt. And so he decided he'd be the cameraman for the team. And he's been doing that. And he really liked it. And so I said, hey, how comfortable are you with that? Really liked it. You, are you like, I'd run a camera today kind of comfortable? And he kind of jokes, uh, yeah. Why? And I told him, because in 12 minutes, if they're not out of that elevator, you're the south camera and I'm the north camera. And we're going to get this done because the shoot doesn't care. And that kid, that was his interview. He's on the team. He was our one of our first freshman walk-on students on Cat Vision that we've ever had because he was willing to do that thing, willing to jump in, even though he was terrified at that moment, he was going to be a camera operator. And you know what? They got out of the elevator and I think he was a little sad about it. Well, thank you so much, Will. Like I say, it's it's a pleasure. We've been setting up this interview with you for ages, and you not only met the expectation, you smashed through them. So thank you so much. And you know, it's funny. You mentioned being an engineer, you know, you fix things. But most of the time people have mentioned you, it's not because you're Mr. Fix-It or you're the technical guy. It's because you've been a mentor, because you've been a teacher that changed their life. It's, it's really those relationships that people remember more about you versus your skills, which your skills are legion, like they're legendary. So not questioning those at all, but it's really those relationships you've made with people, I think, is the reason your name has come up so often, because 
you have in your 20 years at Northwest as an employee, you have probably changed more people's lives that we've talked to than, than anyone else on campus. So thank you for that. That's your, what Northwest is all about. And one of my favorite people on campus for sure. So always a pleasure to chat with you. I appreciate that. It's what my father was like. It's what Scott was like. And I, I fully have the knowledge that that's the, the reason that I'm here. So I just try to pass that on to students as often as I can. Excellent. Thank, well, thank you. you so much. Thanks for coming on my show today, guys. I told you being in the studio, it's going to be hard for me to fight that off. No, I really appreciate being able to come on and being able to share that kind of message and talk about some of the fantastic folks such as yourselves that we have right here at Northwest. Excellent. Well, that will do it for another episode of Behind the Bearcat, and we will talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.